Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today is Tuesday, June the 1st. Oh my goodness, we are in June already. It is a time for us, hopefully, to be looking forward to the summer, but also it's a time of Pentecost where we know the Holy Spirit gives us Christ, and we do so today as we open up our Bibles this next hour to the true and inspired Word of God, and we put on our Christ goggles as we see what the Lord brings to us in 2 Kings chapter 2. As we are still at the beginning of this book, it sounds kind of like the same old saga. Sin, brokenness, some repentance, falling back, God God continually giving his chances, but ultimately we also see his grace. And today we see Elijah show up again, and he's one of those great highlights in 1 Kings, and now he's a highlight here. What does that mean for them? What does that mean for us today? Stick around as the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's Word, we have the honor to have with us Dr. Walter Meyer III, Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Meyer, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Greetings, Brady. It's good to be back. Thank you. Dr. Meyer, uh, well, first of all, happy Pentecost, happy Trinity Sunday, uh, Trinity Sunday this past Sunday. So tell us what's happening for you and, and the work of the saints at Concordia Theological Seminary. Well, we are now into our summertime, and so classes are being conducted. We have a summer session one and two and three, and I'll be teaching Personally, I'll be teaching Hebrew 1 in summer session 2 and then Hebrew 2 in summer session 3. Mm. So I'm looking forward to doing that. The summer schedule here is a little different than the regular year. Uh, one difference is that I go around in polo shirts. I'm, I don't uh, wear a suit and tie uh, during the summertime, so I enjoy the uh, change of attire. I, I do remember one time in one of my classes in the summer, I went to St. Louis, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, and I remember one of our professors would wear a polo, and then the other professors would razz on him, <laughs> and he wasn't wearing a tie. So it was just kind of a fun back and forth. Like you said, it's a different mode in the summertime. Um, so, and this is a reminder for me too, Dr. Meyer, is uh, we should pray for our seminary students as they begin Hebrew. That, be, that can be quite terrifying, can't it? <laughs> Uh, I suppose it can be Brady and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're speaking with, um, you're, you're closer to the time when you took Hebrew. Yep. Um, but I, I understand what you're saying and I appreciate that. And so one of my uh, jobs as a professor is to try and minimize the terror <laughs> <laughs> so that the students will, uh, feel uh, somewhat comfortable in the class and that they will hopefully find it, you know, a good and also an enjoyable learning experience and that they will be gratified as they see the progress they're making by the grace of God. So that's the idea to, to work them into the language, but to also help them as much as possible. So that at the end of the class, they will come out ready to use the Hebrew but not only ready, you know, wanting to use the Hebrew, you know, eager to use it in their upcoming exegetical classes. Absolutely. Well, and the prayers go to you as well as you teach and mold and form our future servants in the church. 
So, Dr. Meyer, as we do that same thing today, dig into your word, can you begin our time in prayer? Yes. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your holy, inspired word. We ask for your blessing on the discussion, that it may be to your glory and for the good of those who are listening, that they may grow in wisdom from your word and that you will strengthen them through your word to live as your people in today's world, your lights in this darkened age. Help us especially as we look at the end of the ministry of the valiant prophet Elijah and how that ministry still encourages us today. We trust in you, O Lord, in your mercy, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Dr. Myers, we, you started us off on uh, the right foot when we started 1 Kings. And now we're in 2 Kings, and we were very blessed yesterday with, with Pastor Matt Clark as we started 2 Kings. And I know you've done a lot of research on both 1 and 2 Kings. How would you, because a lot of people would just say, well, it's the same book, you know, and it's just the same situation, you know. It's just, it's just that someone decided to cut it off at one point and, and call it 2 Kings or something along those lines. Um, but how would you describe, maybe, maybe not even the differences, how would you describe how those connect First and Second Kings and the work of God among his people? Well, simply, Second Kings is a continuation of the history that began with First Kings. And my thinking with regard to the authorship is that it's the same author throughout, uh, First Kings, Second Kings, except for the very ending of Second Kings. So we see in Second Kings the, the same style, the same editorial stance, same editorial interests uh, that we saw in First Kings. And basically the author is continuing his history of Israel and focusing on this question, why did the kingdom of Israel come to an end? Uh, we know from First Kings that the United Kingdom divided. And it, of course, became the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. But now the author continues the history of both of those kingdoms, and he's showing us then why both of those kingdoms came to an end. First of all, the Northern Kingdom with the fall of Samaria to the Assyrians in 723 B.C., and then later on the Southern Kingdom with the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 587 B.C. So he's, he's showing, okay, why did this... Uh, history end this way with the ending of both of these kingdoms. And so that's his main editorial stance, and that's just a continuation then of what we saw uh, with First Kings, especially after the kingdom divided into the northern and southern kingdoms in First Kings chapter 12. Um, we can say that the historical period, of course, is different. Uh, we would say that the historical period picks up here roughly, I'd say, around 851, 851 B.C., and then it just continues on. Uh, as I just mentioned, to the uh, fall of the northern kingdom in 723, and then concludes with the fall of the southern kingdom in 587 B.C. So that's the time frame covered now, but it's a, basically a sequel. It's just a continuation of the history that we saw in First Kings, by the same author, I believe, with the same interest and editorial stance and purpose. 
And that's, you know, it's interesting. I've, you know, I've heard the argument and actually from one of our beloved lay people, my congregation was, was basically saying, well, <clears throat> you know, Israel and Judah weren't good, but Judah was at least a little bit better. <laughs> and a little more faithful is how she described it. And it was a wonderful conversation because I never thought of it that way, but Judah still fell. And it's just a reminder of and it being a little bit better doesn't mean that you're doing great either. So any thoughts on that quote from my beloved member? Well, yeah, she, she basically had it. Um, <laughs> the northern kingdom, none of the kings there receive any kind of condemnation, uh, commendation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. uh, they're all basically seen as, as bad kings by the author of kings. Uh, the southern kingdom... That had a different history. There were some kings who were considered good and and uh, listed as such by the author of kings. Now, according to goodness, that was a spectrum. You know, some barely made it. You know, the rating good, and some were outstanding. Uh, the two outstanding kings of the Southern Kingdom were Hezekiah and then Josiah. And because there were, you know, these uh, good kings, uh, of course, mixed in with the bad kings as well of the southern kingdom, uh, the history of the southern kingdom was a little bit different. Uh, but the southern kingdom, too, was moving on to destruction. But it was a slower march, slowed down somewhat because of these good kings. But the end was the same then as for the northern kingdom. And why? It's because the people rejected the covenant of the Lord. They were unfaithful to the Lord. Uh, they turned their back on the Lord, engaged in wicked practice, including wrong uh, religious practice, even idolatry. And so the Lord was long-suffering with mm. both kingdoms. The Lord wanted both to repent. He sent his prophets to both kingdoms to proclaim his word his word, both of law and gospel, to show them their sins, to try to bring them to repentance, to try to restore them spiritually. But this did not happen. We, we have a slow spiral downward with both, both kingdoms. Uh, the north comes to an end first, of course, and then the southern kingdom. And the message is the same. They fell. They ended because of their disloyalty to the Lord, their disobedience, their lives of rebellion against the Lord. And I love how you how you put that, that the Lord is long-suffering. We had one of our guests, Pastor Adam DeGroat. He's in New Mexico. And, and what he emphasized uh, beginning and throughout our talk and our study was he said, he was we were covering Ahab, and he said, the Lord loved Ahab. And that's kind of been one of my one of my practices as I read it now is whoever the king was, it's good to start with that reminder. The Lord loved, you know, whoever the king was. And and that kind of changes your perspective when you see what God would do. He would continually call them to repentance, continually warn them, continually love them as a, as a loving father would love their children. So I love how you said that and you really emphasize that same point as we read our text today and throughout First and Second Kings, or else if you don't start with the Lord loves whoever they're speaking about, it can be kind of um, kind of depressing at times um, to read it, but to know God's long-suffering love is, is the key. So any last thoughts on, on where we're, we're, what leads us to today? 
Well, I would say this, that uh, the Lord um, had to bring judgment, judgment on both the northern kingdom and on the southern kingdom. And we see God then as the holy and righteous and just God. But uh, the Lord can use judgment then uh, for different purposes. Uh, sometimes it is, you know, fierce judgment on the rebellious ones, and that is the end. That's their destruction. Sometimes God uses the judgment to force those who are the rebellious ones to repentance. Mm. Uh, they're being brought low, can cut away from them their certainty and their own works and their, and their false gods. It can bring the law to them in very real form and actually drive them to the gospel, the gospel which existed uh, both in the northern kingdom and also in the southern kingdom. And through that gospel then being spiritually restored. So some of those rebellious ones, as a result of God's judgment, mm. uh, driven to the gospel and back to the Lord. Now we have to remember, Brady, that also in both kingdoms, and especially in the southern kingdom, the minority, the godly minority, there was a godly minority in both made up of believers. And then the question comes up when the judgment comes on both kingdoms, how does that uh, work for these godly ones, the minority? And we would say, yes, that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. Uh, some of these godly ones, the believing minority, uh, they needed some discipline in their life, uh, some correction by the Lord. And so this worked uh, for their good. Proper discipline resulted then in their being straightened out and greater fruit bearing for the Lord, thinking of Hebrews chapter 12. Mm -hmm. uh, with regard to other godly ones, uh, faithful to the Lord, uh, the discipline could work, uh, the judgment could work from the Lord for their refining. Uh, and so all of us, this side of heaven, this side of the grave, can use spiritual refining from the Lord to burn away more dross, so that there is more gold. And so God could use uh, this judgment on the kingdoms uh, for their good in this way, that they are spiritually refined and then drawn closer to the Lord. And that, and that's a, a, a great rundown as how we look at not only, because you, you can kind of look at it like, well, what about those who believed? Well, the Lord still worked with them. And those who um, were called to repentance, well, the Lord worked faith in them. And sometimes people didn't. And so that's just a reminder for us as it was then, it is still today. And what do we depend on? The Lord and this Pentecost season, the Holy Spirit to work in all of our hearts. So, Pastor or Dr. Meyer, let's let's begin where we come to the point where we have Elijah um, speaking again, and this is a very well-known story when it comes to uh, uh, Sunday school and such, but it has much bigger implications, and as we get to the end of chapter 2, even more fun, I would argue that a lot of it I haven't read much. So let's begin. Um, a reminder to our listeners, we are reading from the English Standard Version. As we hear God's word, we will read the first 12 verses of Second Kings chapter 2. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. 
And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you, also, you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted and the one side and to the other till the two of them could go on over on dry ground. Then they crossed. Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I have been taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as, the, as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. So, like I said, this is this is a very classic Bible story that most children learned if they went to Sunday school or went to a Lutheran school or a Christian school. Uh, tell us about this. Um, any unique aspects of the story that maybe we miss or the main theme of, of these first 12 verses? Well, of course, we're dealing here with the ascension of Elijah into heaven. And different thoughts really come to mind. Um, you know, we notice this uh, three-fold pattern, the, the repetition three times. You know, Elijah says to Elisha, stay here. Uh, but Elisha refuses. He says, I'm not going to leave you. No way. I'm sticking with you. That's a little bit of a paraphrase. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. And so that, that happens uh, three times. And so the question comes up, why did Elijah say to Elisha, stay here? And the text doesn't indicate explicitly, doesn't give us an explicit answer, but here are some thoughts. Elijah wants to focus on the Lord and what's going to take place. And so he wants to be in full concentration. This is between him and God. So that's one possible reason as to why he told Elisha to stay behind. Another thought that comes to mind, and this is not Opposed to the first thought, it can be along with it. Uh, he's testing the resolve of Elisha. Uh, you know, do you want to stick with me to the end, and you, know, you see yourself in as my successor, indeed? And through this testing process, that actually strengthened then the resolve of Elisha. And we remember how Jesus spoke to Peter three times after his resurrection. Uh, by the Sea of Galilee, you know, do you love me? So that's a parallel passage that uh, comes to mind. 
And Elisha, of course, does not want to leave Elijah. He loves this man. This man has been his mentor. And he wants to stay with him as, as long as possible to the last minute. And so uh, he you know, does not want to leave. So those are some thoughts with regard to the dialogue that, that took place between the two prophets. Have now, you... a concerning – go ahead, Brittany, go ahead. I was just going to ask this real quick question. What came to mind as you were talking was the story of Ruth. And, and when, when, when the mother-in-law says, see, you can go. And she's like, no, I'm not going to go. I, have you ever heard any um, connection to that or any thoughts on that? Actually, I, I have not heard that connection, but I think that uh, that's an interesting story to bring up. Yeah. And again, um, there, you know, there's the flee from Naomi, but Ruth refuses and she's going to stick with her mother-in-law. And it shows Ruth's attachment to Naomi. And in that particular story, she sees herself then as one who can be used by the Lord to help Naomi in her time of grief and even indeed bitterness. Yeah, right. Yeah, the, obviously a distinction, but I just thought the same words as I um, was talking. But anyways, continue on, continue on. So um, with regard to this matter of the ascension into heaven, uh, this was a wonderful act of vindication on the part of the Lord, vindicating Elijah as his prophet. He was the true messenger of the Lord who delivered the word of God. We can also think this way. Jezebel had been determined to kill Elijah. And the prophet himself had prayed to die. That was First Kings chapter 19. And now the Lord, in essence, is saying, I'm going to show everyone who is in control here. And Elijah will come to heaven according to my timetable. And in fact, he will not die. Hmm. So God is asserting his lordship here. And that's a, another thought that we can see bring forth from this ascension. Something else, uh, this is a slap at Canaanite religion, at the religion promoted by, that had been promoted by Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, Baal was considered the storm god. He dwelt in the heavens. He was the one who sent the rain that was so necessary for life in the ancient Near East, also the dew. His voice was the thunder. His spear was the lightning bolt. And so what do we see here? This, this prophet of God, Elijah, who spoke against Baal, was an antagonist you know, of all Baal worshipers. Uh, here we have him going right up to heaven. That's supposed to be the abode of Baal. So <laughs> that was a clear theological point uh, being made by God. And also it's a slap at Mot, uh, the Canaanite god of death, uh, Moat does not have control here either. It's Yahweh who is entirely uh, in control. He is God and God alone. And then another thought is this, and of course we remember Christ's ascension. So uh, Elijah's ascension foreshadowed Christ's ascension into heaven. And you know that brings up some other similarities between Christ and Elijah. We can make uh, some points there. Uh, both of these uh, were prophets of the Lord. Of course, Elijah and Christ, the greatest prophets. 
both of these prophets demonstrated God's mastery over nature. Uh, Elijah said there would be no rain, and there was no rain at the, his word as the messenger of the Lord, of Yahweh. And then he prayed for rain to come, and then rain returned. And of course, Christ, as God, demonstrated mastery over nature. We can think, for example, of his stilling of the storm at the sea. Uh, both prophets, Elijah and Christ, experienced angelic ministry. Uh, an angel ministered, an angel ministered to Elijah in First Kings chapter 19. Remember, at different points in Christ's ministry, after his temptation, um, angels ministered to him, and an angel strengthened him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, both prophets brought the dead back to life, Elijah and Christ. And then once again, both ascended bodily into heaven. So that leads you know, to the thought, this comparison, uh, similarities in the ministries of Elijah and Christ. And, and, and that's a... How, how would you describe it? I've always said that we would consider him to be a type of Christ. Is there other kind of lingo that you've used when you talk about Elijah and Jesus? Or how would you say it? Right. I, I see the, the whole prophetic office uh, as a typical of, of Christ's offer, uh, office of prophets. Okay. And we can go back to the time of Moses and Deuteronomy chapter 18, for example. But Yes, the prophetic office of the Old Testament era, typical of Christ's office as prophet. And when we think of the prophet, we think of one who spoke forth the word of God uh, for the benefit of the people. Very often, not always, but very often, the prophets also uh, performed miracles that we have recorded for us in the Old Testament. So yes, uh, Elijah certainly figures into this. And uh, we, I mentioned Moses. Uh, so Moses, you know, the first major prophet uh, of the Old Testament, and now Elijah. Uh, comparisons can be made between Moses and Elijah as well. And we think then of the transfiguration of Christ yeah. and who appeared with him on the mountain. These are wonderful connections, and I want to touch on a little bit more after our break about the connection of the Jordan River. There seems to be a lot of uh, God action at the Jordan River. I want to talk about that after our break. We are studying first, Second Kings, excuse me, chapter two, with Dr. Walter Meyer, and we'll be right back. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia, reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We are studying 2 Kings chapter 2 with Dr. Walter Meyer of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. As we 
made many connections, and I, and I really appreciate, Dr. Meyer, the connections you're making with Elijah and with Jesus and Elijah and the Ascension and Elijah and Moses, and you ended it with where exactly what I was thinking in my mind about Mount of Transfiguration, and, and there was the prophetic office that was fulfilled in Christ. I mean, such a wonderful connection. Now, I wanted to touch on a little bit about, this happens at the Jordan River, and there seems to be well, a lot of fun God stuff that happens at the Jordan River. Any any reflections on that? Well, of course, the Jordan, uh, the key geographical feature in the Holy Land. And we think of the Jordan. Um, first of all, uh, Moses was not allowed to cross the Jordan mm. uh, because of his sin back with the rock and water coming from the rock back in Numbers chapter 20, Moses and Aaron. So while they entered the promised land, the eastern portion, the Transjordanian portion, they were not allowed to cross the Jordan and to go over into the major portion of the promised land. So we think that Moses died there then uh, east of the Jordan River. Then we think of the time of Joshua, and uh, after the death of Moses, Joshua, the new leader of Israel, and his leading the people across the Jordan then uh, for the conquest of the major portion of the Promised Land and the miracle that took place and how the waters were divided and the people passed through on dry ground. And, of course, that makes us think back to the miracle at the sea in Exodus chapter 14 and Exodus chapter 15. And again, water is divided and people passing through on dry ground. So now in this story here, as we just read in 2 Kings chapter 2, at the Jordan, the waters are again parted. And the text says very clearly that both men, Elijah and Elisha, went over on dry ground. And so that, of course, makes us think back then to the time of Joshua and the crossing of the Jordan, and also to the time of Moses and the crossing of the sea. And there is one connection, then. there's one similarity between Moses and Elijah, a miracle involving the water and waters being divided. And then uh, after Elijah has ascended into heaven, Elijah, with the cloak now, the mantle of Elijah, uh, comes to the Jordan, and Elisha then strikes the waters as Elijah had done previously, and the waters are divided, and he crosses over in dry ground, which shows now that he is indeed the successor of Elijah. Uh, he's inherited that role, and God will be with him in performing mighty deeds also through him. So uh, those are some thoughts. And then finally this, um, Brady, Notice again how there's a similarity with regard to Moses and Elijah. Why did Elijah then cross the Jordan with Elijah and go into the eastern portion there of the Promised Land? Mm -hmm. He went east over across the Jordan River. Well, I think that this certainly can be a consideration that he wanted to leave this earth in the same general area that Moses Moses left oh, this earth. Of course, sure. God ended Moses' life, and then he buried him. God took Elijah alive to heaven, but both left this earth, so to speak, east of the Jordan. That is fascinating. Oh, my goodness. 
I have to rethink about that for a while. But yeah, that is wonderful connections of Moses and Elijah. And, and especially, like you said, mountain transfiguration, um, the meaning of all of this. And so there is, I mean, you just think about Elisha for a moment. And I think about this in a, in a, a very worldly point of view. There he is. He knows he's going to be gone. Um, two, the people have told him twice. Any thoughts on how did they know he was going to be leaving? Any insight on that? I would have to say, Brady, that God simply communicated to these sons of the prophets as they are called. Mm-hmm. Uh, he communicated them that information that Elijah would be leaving. And they come out, and that's what they now speak to Elisha about. And, of course, he already knows it as well. So I just see that as revelation from God to this group known as the Sons of the Prophets. Okay, that, that makes total sense. It it brings a very human aspect to this because, you know, it's kind of like— um, I think as a, as a parent, I, I don't have any uh, graduates yet, but I do have a daughter that might be studying somewhere else next year for her freshman year of high school and uh, in, at Concordia, Missouri, at St. Paul Lutheran High School. And one of the situations that we do deal with is someone says, you know that my daughter is going to be, she's going to be leaving next year, right? And I'm kinda, I kind of, I kind of react like Elisha. Yeah, I know. Be quiet about it though. <laughs> you're just like, yeah. this is too much to think about. So it gives Elisha a wonderful, um, he, we can relate with him that when people are going to be leaving us, yeah, okay, I get it. I understand that, but I need, I need my time. I need to be able to see this. I need to be able to grieve. And so there is definitely a, a relationship there of Elisha and Elijah that is definitely very human as we look at it. So you can almost envision him watching the ascension, much like the disciples when they saw Jesus go up, like, okay, now what? Now what am I going to do? Any any last thoughts on these first 12 verses? Well, I would say this, that um, Elisha was privileged to see this, and that certainly showed then that he received, as he had requested, a double portion in Elijah's spirit. And he also then had Elijah's mantle. Uh, So that was positive for Elijah, a big positive. But then the negative, Elijah was gone from him. And so he's going to miss him. It was also a time of, of grief. Uh, when a person you know you hold uh, is very dear, is precious, you know, is taken from you. Uh, so at the same time, he was grieving. So he tore his clothes, and that was a sign of of grief. But he knows now that he has this work to do, uh, to be the uh, prophet now in Israel, the northern kingdom specifically. And so he's going forth uh, in the power of the Lord. Uh, with this double portion in the spirit of Elijah. And so God has equipped him. That's a key thought here. God has equipped him now for this, for this ministry. He's going to miss Elijah, but God has given him the necessary gifts and fortitude and strength and courage. And so he will too as well, Elisha will carry on a valiant ministry for the Lord. Let's continue on then, verses 13 through 18, as we hear more about Elisha. And he, Elisha, took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, 
Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted on the one side and the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon the mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? So, so stopping there, there's kind of uh, there's a worldly skepticism of this. Uh, <laughs> so Elijah's gone. Okay, right. And so they go search for him. Um, but clearly, Elisha is the man, and they even notice that he has the spirit upon him. Um, what are your reflections on these verses? These sons of the prophets, who would be like um, assistants to Elisha in the ministry of the word in the northern kingdom, they see that indeed the successor to Elijah is Elisha. And there's no question that they see him as their leader, as their teacher. And they show him that respect right away by bowing to the ground before him. So this is now God's way of vindicating the prophet Elisha and saying, yes, yes, he is my my messenger. Uh, now, beyond that, you know, their request, you were referring to this, their request to, to try and find Elijah. And so they're not really thinking that he's gone to heaven. Now, he must be around someplace. You know, the spirit must have taken him to some other place and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. So they're not really accepting at this point yet that Elijah was actually taken to heaven. And here, Brady, I see another connection that can be made with Moses. Uh, with this thought, after their earthly departures, the body of Moses could not be found. And we read about that at the end of Deuteronomy. Uh, God buried Moses, but no one knew know where the grave was so his body could not be found and of course now <laughs> elijah can't be found even though 50 men were looking for him and looking for him for three days so there's another uh, similarity uh, that can be brought out between the two prophets moses and elijah and here's here's a thought i have as we're talking is there's the double portion of the spirit upon him and, and people notice it. There, there's an understanding of what's going on. And have you ever made a connection, and maybe I'm way overstretching this, but of, of Pentecost and what happened for Elisha and that whole process? Because uh, you see the ascension, right? And he's looking there, and then he kind of goes back to his business. Have you made any connections with Pentecost and the ascension and Elijah, Elisha? I don't know. Any thoughts on that? I would say that God continually raises up uh, servants who will deliver his word and be for the blessing of the church, whether we're talking about the Old Testament church or the New Testament church. So God took Elijah to heaven. 
but he had another great servant there to take his place, and that would be Elisha. And again, as already mentioned, he equipped Elisha for this very important role. And so now going forward into Pentecost and thinking of Christ's ascension and then Acts chapter 2, again, you know, Christ was taken from this earth. Uh, he ascended into heaven. But God raised up the apostles then to be, you know, the leaders there in the early church. And he equipped them for their very important work. So we see in all this the goodness of the Lord and how the Lord provides and how he does this in his grace and mercy and love. Now I want to take one step back and focus on Elijah before we go too much further. And there is always this connection that I've made, and and you see this with, with Jesus as well, is Elijah and John the Baptist. How would you break that down as we now get to the end of hearing about Elijah in the Old Testament? How does that connect with John the Baptist? Well, we have a very explicit connection in Luke chapter 1 when Gabriel is announcing to Zechariah that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a son, and this son will be you know, a mighty servant of the Lord, and he will go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. So we can think of John the Baptist as a second Elijah. And we also have that, for example, in Malachi. And uh, God says there in Malachi, I'll send my servant Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that is a reference then to the coming of John the Baptist, who prepared the way of the Lord. And Jesus then indicates, you know, in his teaching that indeed, John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to come. And so John the Baptist, too, had this equipping from the Lord, and he went forth in courage and boldness uh, because of the Lord being with him. Both men, Elijah and John the Baptist, had a profound effect on their countrymen. I'm thinking of Elijah, especially in 1 Kings chapter 18, the scene at the top of Mount Carmel. Mm and the fire coming down from heaven. And John the Baptist, well, with his preaching repentance and his baptizing at the Jordan River, and crowds came out to him, and he was indeed preparing the way of the Lord. Uh, some bring out even this, that uh, perhaps these uh, two men, Elijah and John the Baptist, had the same style of dress. Uh, in other words, a, a hairy garment and a leather belt around their waist. And uh, we know that with regard to Elijah, and that was, again, in, in 2 Kings chapter 1, and that is the description given for John the Baptist. So it's very possible that they also had even the same style of dress. Uh, both of these men <laughs> reprimanded a king. Mm. So Elijah reprimanded Ahab you know, for his Baal worship. And we know that John the Baptist reprimanded Herod and for his, uh, his wickedness, his immorality. And both then were dealing with hostile political authorities, uh, especially then uh, a wicked woman. And so thinking back to Elijah, you know, Jezebel, and thinking to John the Baptist, Herodias. And uh, so both then you know, had that kind of opposition you know, from, from a woman. 
So these are some similarities we can bring out between the two. And yes, because of clear scriptural indication, John the Baptist was a second Elijah. And as as we look at this, it is it is so exciting for me because when you when you go through as a kid, and I still feel like a kid sometimes reading the Bible, like you're just like, wow, I didn't know that was there. That's so cool. But you're going through, and and when you're able to bring it together, and as as I've my professors would tell me, and is you put your Christ goggles on, isn't just like, okay, I see Jesus there, but you see everything that connects to Jesus as well, that John the Baptist related to Jesus, um, the, the forerunner, all these connections that are there make it all, first of all, you make you realize that it's true, that God put this all together for the sake of, of us seeing that he did connect and put this, these scriptures together. But also, it points us always back to Christ, that his grace was, was there in the Old Testament, his grace is there in the New Testament, and it all points us back to Jesus. So thank you, Dr. Meyer, for making all of those connections, because we could just read this and go, yeah, that's cool, he went to heaven, you know, I wonder what kind of chariot it was, did it have a horse on it, or didn't <laughs> it, you know, oh my goodness, it, you lose the point if we lose Christ. So any last thoughts before we continue to move forward? Again, uh, how the Lord raises up a workers, he will provide for his church. So there is a valiant ministry, and uh, these various servants of the Lord, the, we thank the Lord for their work, but then their time comes to an end. Mm. But the Lord then has those who will succeed them, and he'll continue then with the helping and the ministering to his church. Let's continue on with those thoughts in mind, verses 19 through 22, as we hear more um, from Elisha. Like you said, the work must continue, and Elisha does. Verse 19, Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. So like you said, the the work must go on, the show must go on. And he he continues um, by, first of all, going to water. Um, How... What are connections you can make with this story and the rest of Scripture and what, what, what the author is trying to tell us? Well, here we have further vindication of Elisha. And this would now be known to more people with this miracle involving the spring. So indeed, he was the prophet of God, of Yahweh, and God would be performing mighty deeds through his servant Elisha. So we can see this, you know, as vindication of his prophetic office, that he is indeed the messenger of the Lord. Um, also this, uh, he asked for a new bowl, and that was signifying, that was symbolic of the fact that God would be renewing the spring, uh, and renewal would come from the Lord. Uh, so God is the God who brings about change, and change for the better. And he would be using the ministry of Elisha uh, to bring about the spiritual renewal of many then in the northern kingdom. And, of course, with God, nothing is impossible. Uh, He could change the waters. 
And as well, God can change people spiritually from his enemies into those who love him and serve him and are his dear children. So these are some thoughts that uh, come forth uh, from from this uh, particular incident here in 2 Kings chapter 2. I would say also we're reminded of something now also in the ministry of Moses, and they came to a place shortly after the crossing of the sea where the water was bitter, but the Lord told Moses to cut down a tree and to throw that into the water, and then it became drinkable, sweet. And so here's a similar incident now with the prophet Elisha. That is Okay, there we go. The connections just keep coming back to Moses. And you're right, Exodus chapter 15, where they go across and the water is no good. So um, he threw the uh, the log into the water, obviously not salt. I mean, salt kind of makes sense that, you know, we have water softeners um, that kind of make the water a little more palatable, at least up here in, in northern Minnesota. Um, and that makes sense. A log does not quite make water better. So that was the work of God. Um, but the connections of, of all of this and bringing us to Mount Transfiguration um, and the prophetic office continuing all the way to Christ is quite profound. Uh, now, I want to take one step back here, Dr. Meyer. You are also going to write a commentary on Second Kings. Is that correct? That's right. I'm, I'm in the process of doing that right now. Okay. Have you already done chapter two in this uh, commentary that you, you, you know your stuff, obviously? Actually, I have uh, just begun to write Second <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Kings chapter two, so it's uh, fresh, fresh in my study. And so, getting ready for this interview, Brady, was good for me. I mean, okay. I. I did the research and study, and this is going to go into my commentary. <laughs> oh, wonderful, wonderful! I'm, we're excited for that, and continue to pray for you. Um, so let's let's keep moving forward as we see all these connections, um, which is really exciting. A lot of fun here this morning, and so let's finish it off, and then also ask the important another important question: How does this relate for us in today's world? Verses twenty three through twenty five. He went up from there to Bethel. And when he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And the two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria." Now, these, these last verses here, um, I don't think I've ever read those in, um, in the art books. I never read this part <laughs> in Sunday <laughs> school. And, and there's a, you know, there's connections there, but tell us about these last few verses and what they mean. Well, these last verses have gotten some people angry. Uh, <laughs> they don't like these, and they're thinking, well, wait a minute, these are just small children and they're saying some things but now the bears come out isn't that you know too harsh you know from the lord isn't this you know an angry prophet who turns around and curses them don't we see elisha here in a bad light Mm. well i would like to present this in a different way Uh, First of all, with regard to the age of these boys, we're dealing there with the Hebrew word na'ar. And that's a flexible word. 
in general, the possible range in age in years for that word na'ar can be from single digits to the teens and even into the 20s. So it depends on the context as to how you understand that. Uh, it can be, again, someone who is nine, eight, nine years old. Uh, it can be a young man of marriageable age uh, back then. Uh, it can be even a little bit older than that. So it's, it's a flexible term. Here in 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, my impression, my instinct is that the boys perhaps were anywhere from about 10 to 14 years old. Uh, so they were old enough to show respect to the prophet. They were old enough to know exactly you know, what they were doing. Um, they knew Elisha. They recognized him and they knew what he was, you know, a prophet of Yahweh, of God. And the fact that there are quite a few of them, and 42 mentioned here, you know, in uh, this verse, verse 24, 42 at least, this shows an organized effort to mock Elisha. So they recognized them, they gathered together for this purpose. They indeed mock him. They refer to him as bald head. Uh, it's not necessarily a description of a physical feature of the prophet. Not necessarily was he bald, but this was used simply as an epithet of scorn. You know, indeed, it's a term of mockery. So, Elijah, Elisha, I'm sorry, Elisha may or may not have been bald. This passage doesn't prove that, uh, one way or the other. But it was indeed, without question, a term of mockery. And then they say, "Go up, go up." you bald head. What is that a reference to? Go up. Now, different proposals have been made. The one that I favor is that this is probably a reference to Elijah going up to heaven. And so news of that got around. Uh, word spread. And they knew about this in Bethel when now Elisha is passing through that town. And we have to remember that Bethel was one of the chief worship sites of the first king of the north, Jeroboam I, and a key location for his religious innovations, his wrong religious innovations, in which he set up a golden cap. He set up a golden cap here at Bethel, the mm. southernmost point of his kingdom, and also at Dan, the northernmost point. Right. And this was, of course, wrong, contrary to the Torah. He also instituted a new religious calendar and as well an alternative priesthood to the Aaronic priesthood instituted by God. And this was the start now of the religious corruption in the northern kingdom. And Bethel, Bethel then was the chief site for this. And so you, you bring all this together, Brady. And so the boys knew who Elisha was, that he was an opponent of the innovations of Jeroboam the first. He was an opponent of the golden calf there in Bethel. He was a prophet of Yahweh. Uh, and so they're mocking him. And they're also mocking with this phrase, go up. So they knew about this, that Elijah had been taken to heaven, but they didn't believe it. Okay, that's just a fictional story. That's something that's made up. And so, yeah, 
Elijah went up to heaven. You too, Elisha, go up. You go up too. But it's all said in mockery, uh, in you know, not believing what actually took place. Now, this is indicative of the rottenness then in the northern kingdom, the religious rottenness in the northern kingdom. We see this you know, even in these young people, uh, perhaps 10 to 14 years old. But once again, this is a deliberate attack on Elisha. And then when you think about it, it's also an attack on Elijah and both of these men as messengers of the Lord. And ultimately, this is an attack on Yahweh, the the true God of Israel, and on his word, his true word, which was delivered by such men as Elijah and Elisha. So Elisha now, in total zeal for the Lord and for his honor, and for his word, uh, turns around and utters this curse. And then we have what results from that. And so this is God making it very clear. He is not to be mocked. He, the Lord God, neither are his messengers to be mocked, those who proclaim his word. And yes, there is such a thing as you know a righteous curse. We remember in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, with God's covenant with Abram, and what he says there, those, the one blessing you, I will bless, and the one cursing you, I will curse. Uh, so we have that, for example, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. So this is an important lesson here, and this is setting the tone now. Uh, for what's going to take place, you know, in the northern kingdom. There in that scene of religious corruption, and this man of God then carrying on his ministry as the messenger of Yahweh. Well, Dr. Meyer, we are at the end of our time. Um, Dr. Meyer is professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, helping us put on our Christ goggles and connecting almost the whole Bible in 2 Kings chapter 2. Dr. Meyer, thank you again for being our guest. I certainly enjoyed it, Brady. It was a privilege. Lord's blessings to you. Saints of our Lord, Dr. Meyer said it best, that the Lord will not be mocked. And with that, he provides for his church. He provided for the uh, for the people, for Elisha after Elijah left, and he provides for us. Christ is ascended on high, and we know that this Pentecost season he has given us his Holy Spirit, not only to help us, but also to give us Christ once again. And for that, we give thanks and still say the Alleluia that Christ is risen, risen indeed. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.